The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Bombs, votes, and a campaign of fear. This is Thursday, October 25th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Yesterday was just not a good day for the U.S., and another 600-point drop in the Dow didn't help, since, added to other recent drops, it wiped out all of the gains of 2018 with only two months left in the year. The S&P index was down more than 3%. NASDAQ had its worst day since 2011. Many 401k holders are apoplectic. Trump's trade war is one reason, and rising interest rates, uncertainty about the election, is another. In the run-up to today's program, the plan was to lead with the subject of voter enthusiasm. This is not the kind of enthusiasm I had in mind. Functional pipe bombs loaded with glass shards for shrapnel were sent to or delivered to former President Barack Obama's family home in Washington, D.C., former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton at the suburban New York home she shares with former President Bill Clinton, the California and Washington, D.C. offices of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, and a former CIA director John Brennan at CNN, even though Brennan works as a commentator at NBC News. A bomb headed for former Vice President Joe Biden has been intercepted in Delaware. This morning, bomb experts carted off a package that had been sent to actor Robert De Niro in the Tribeca neighborhood of New York. The return addresses on all the packages was that of former Democratic National Committee Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who got a return deliver of the package sent to former Attorney General Eric Holder because it was so poorly addressed. Wasserman Schultz's name was consistently misspelled on the packages, as was Brennan's. Two days before, on Monday, a bomb was delivered to billionaire and generous Democratic donor George Soros, about 10 miles from where the Clintons live. Eight bombs, all of which look alike, all sent to prominent Democrats, and all of the bombs now in the hands of America's top experts at Quantico, at the FBI. They'll use those devices, the envelopes, the stamps, the packaging, the tape, and other clues to find the bomb maker. They always do. Confidence is high the bomber will be found, and soon. He made a lot of mistakes along the way, which will also lead authorities to him. This homegrown terrorist, this MAGA bomber. What all his targets have in common is that they are exclusively Democrats, and they are all critics of Trump. They are all people Trump has demonized at his rallies and on his Twitter feed. They are all enemies of Trump, collaterally including his favorite target in his fake news claims, Time Warner's CNN. The president of CNN issued a statement saying, quote, There is a total and complete lack of understanding at the White House about the seriousness of their continued attacks on the media, adding, The president, and especially the White House press secretary, should understand their words matter. So far, said CNN's Jeff Zucker, they've shown no comprehension of that. CNN was reporting on the Obama and Clinton bombs when a fire alarm went off inside the live studio. Much of New York's Time Warner building was evacuated and people in the area were told to shelter in place. The bombs were clearly a coordinated effort. Similar bombs arriving simultaneously at the homes of the nation's top Democrats from New York to Florida to California a dozen days before an election. And not just any election. 
We are 12 days out from what may be the biggest midterm election day turnout in history, certainly the biggest in more than a decade and maybe the biggest in history. We're already voting in record numbers in two-thirds of the country. Three states started as early as September 21st. Early voting began this week in the key states of Florida and Texas. In Florida, over 7 million people have already voted. Turnout is up among Democrats, Republicans, and the election-deciding independents. One expert says the turnout for this congressional election could be a record-matcher or a record-breaker. Quoting a Florida poli-sci professor, if these patterns persist, we could see a turnout rate at least equaling 1966, which was 48%, and if we beat that, then you have to go all the way back to 1914. Voting has already begun in 32 states. By tomorrow, it'll be 33 if you count D.C., and we do. Three states vote by mail, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. Kansans begin their early voting next week, in the week prior to the election. A neighboring red state, Oklahoma, waits until the calendar turns over to November to begin its early voting. There is no early voting in 13 states. But as with this year's voter registration numbers, early voting numbers have been double, triple, and sometimes quadruple that of the previous midterm in 2014. This midterm has a lot of the enthusiasm of a presidential election. Some of the turnouts we've seen come close to what we've seen in presidential elections. That's because this midterm is about the president. Like almost everything else in the news since 2016, it's about him. Despite the Democrats' efforts to focus on kitchen table issues and the Republican focus on the liberal mob, the vote is already underway, and it's really about him. So this midterm is unusual because of the him factor. But it's also unusual for the number of Democrats registering and voting and donating money to candidates. Will the trend continue, or were these just the most highly motivated Democrats? Will the rest of Democratic voters turn out? Of the voters under age 34, fewer than 4 in 10 plan to vote. Many in that age group have not voted since they voted for Obama. It should concern young voters that 62% of the people in the over 65 age group do plan to vote. The exception among young voters is the well-educated. College-educated white Democrats say they will vote 7% more likely to do so than their Republican classmates, according to a poll for the New York Times. Seven out of ten of the college-educated plan to vote this time, most of them now living in the suburbs. They are the group considered most responsible for flipping congressional seats in eastern Kansas and in Colorado's 6th District. Most of all, Democratic women are turning out in bigger numbers. Among minority voters in the city, registered Democrats have an edge over Republicans, but the two parties are tied among minority voters who actually plan to vote. There's also been a Republican surge, probably not enough to keep control of the House, but enough perhaps to make a Democratic Congress a little less dominant. The red surge began with outrage over the Democrats' challenge to the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And as that began to fade, it got a boost this past week from the perceived army of criminals and Middle Easterners, as Trump put it, marching to invade the United States. There's nothing to back up the president's claims, of course, so for good measure, he wondered out loud if Democrats might have started the caravan. The Republican hope is to prevent the expected Democratic sweep, leaving Democrats with a slim House majority. Republicans are now working to minimize their losses, going after candidates in close rural races, using the Kavanaugh nomination as a voter motivator. There's even a scenario under which Republicans could keep control of the House. 
By the polls, Democrats had a 72% chance of winning the House. 72% is the probability also enjoyed by Hillary Clinton until the votes were actually counted. A couple of polls have shown the race to be ultra-close, indicating there will be no blue wave, but one of those polls failed to count the independents, two-thirds of whom are voting Democratic. Quoting Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, it's still much closer than people think. But pollster Nate Silver now puts the Democratic chances at 85%. The difference this time is that Democratic voters have been outperforming their numbers while Republicans have not. This last-minute Republican push comes just as Trump's approval rating goes up five points. America seems to want to keep Trump, but put a Congress in place that will keep him in check Republicans are prepared to match Democrats penny for penny on advertising for these final days of the campaign. The attack ads are already on the air. And Democrats appear to have caught up with Republicans on social media. Democrats post on Facebook about equal with Republicans, a big change from 2016. Democratic Senate candidates are getting five times the engagements as Republicans on Facebook. And Democrats practically own the news feed on Instagram. Republicans, however, are still expected to keep control of the Senate as they try to keep their losses in the House to a minimum, to keep that incoming Democratic majority to a minimum. In governor's races in Kansas, Michigan, and Illinois, Republican candidates are trailing or tied at best, meaning their party's candidates for state legislature have no coattails on which to ride. Again, advantage Democrats, but only if they keep turning out as they have so far. Based on our history, we will re-elect 90% of the incumbents on the ballot. Since Republicans already own both lawmaking bodies in two-thirds of our states, they will retain overall control of our state governments. But Democrats are expected to make gains and actually flip some states, partly because of something else unusual about this midterm. This year, Democrats have been running in districts that have been so historically Republican, the Democratic Party had stopped running candidates in those districts, writing them off as already lost to focus on closer races elsewhere. As any lottery player will tell you, though, you can't win if you don't play. This year, Democrats are playing in almost every district, regardless of how heavily red they may be. And it may pay off as more Democrats vote this midterm because they are motivated also by Trump. Here in Florida, the number of people who disapprove of Trump outnumber those who approve 51% to 43%. Most Floridians don't like him. And among the majority who disapprove, an astonishing 92% of them support the Democrat who's running for governor. That may be the prime reason Andrew Gillum's poised to become the state's first black governor as he leads Republican Ron DeSantis 54% to 42 with a week and a half to go. Gillum can mostly thank the anger of Democratic women for his healthy lead. Despite the state's issues, including guns, toxic algae, and rising sea levels, the focus of the gubernatorial debate between Gillum and DeSantis spent a surprising amount of time on national and even international issues. That's because the Florida governor's race, like so many of the races this year, is about the president. DeSantis has not been shy about his support for Trump. Gillum has made no secret of his disdain for the current commander-in-chief. In the one Senate race in Florida this election, incumbent Democrat Bill Nelson has a five-point edge over Republican Rick Scott, who's currently Florida's governor and currently facing questions about his finances and conflicts of interest. Having possibly losing candidates in Senate and or gubernatorial races is a problem for Republican candidates for Congress in Florida 
and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Minnesota, and it further threatens Republicans' chances of keeping control of the House in Washington. In California, likewise, reliably Republican Orange County appears to be poised to turn blue. Between L.A. and San Diego lies a county where it was once labeled where good Republicans go to die. But today, at the yachting marinas and country clubs, they've grown weary of not just Trump, but everything that's come with him. Orange County is suffering from Trump fatigue, especially since their congressman is Dana Rohrabacher, who's cut from the same cloth as the president. Quoting one voter there, I may be a Republican, but I don't have to vote Republican up and down the ballot. And then there are the wives of these yachtsmen. Two of them told The Guardian about a secret wives club of women whose husbands love Trump. Some white suburban women married to Republicans have come out of that closet and formed organizations that have grown over these past two years. Because in Florida, Orange County, California, and almost everywhere, it's about him. In their desperation to hang on to as much of the House as they can and other seats, Republicans are resorting to the usual tactics. In Georgia, the governor's race is controlled by one of the candidates, Secretary of State Brian Kemp. In his effort to defeat African-American Democrat Stacey Abrams, Kemp has purged nearly a million names from Georgia's voter registration rolls, most of them, 70 to 80 percent of them, black voters. And more than a third of those people were removed improperly. An investigative journalist commissioned an analysis and found that more than 340,000 voters had their names removed on the grounds this year that they had moved to a new address, even though they still live at the addresses they had given on their registration applications. That led to a lawsuit against Kemp, while that journalist looks for other ways that Kemp may have sought to prevent a victory by his black Democratic rival. The lawsuit would force Kemp to reveal all of it, including how the other two-thirds of a million Georgia voters had their rights taken away from them since Kemp took his election supervising job two years ago. 53,000 Georgians remain suspended from voting because of missing hyphens on forms or because of some other minor error with the voter given no chance to correct it until after the election. Kemp's total purge, however, now totals just shy of a million people in just one state. Stacey Abrams, meanwhile, continues to be a strong competitor despite Brian Kemp's efforts to suppress her supporters. Quoting a civil rights leader in Atlanta, if Kemp had one ounce of integrity, he would have stepped aside as Secretary of State because you cannot referee an election in which you stand to be a winner. Republican officials across Georgia are doing their parts to suppress Democratic votes using the state's Republican-passed signature mismatch law. That law gives local election officials the opportunity to throw out absentee ballots when they don't think the signature matches that of the person who filled out the registration application. Local election officials are not and do not employ professional handwriting analysts. Experts will tell you that a signature must be compared to 10 others of its kind before a proper call can be made about the authenticity of the signature in question. It's a gut call, and the Republican gut is doing what it has done in elections since the Clinton era, suppress the vote to keep Democrats from voting or winning. This, too, this amateur handwriting analysis that takes away a person's right to vote became the target of a lawsuit, and yesterday a federal judge blocked the enforcement of that signature mismatch law. Those people, the absentee voters whose signatures didn't strike twice in the same place, now get to vote. 
the best part of it all for Brian Kemp and Georgia's other Republican candidates is the confusion this has all caused among voters, especially in the African-American community that was already hardest hit by Kemp's voter suppression efforts. The man who is the key factor in all the races across the country has also been a part of the midterms campaigning. Key to Trump's efforts, firing up conservatives with everything from an offer to buy votes for a Trump-reliable machismo. In one of his rallies in Elko, Nevada, it was there that Trump said Republicans are planning a very major tax cut for middle-income earners before Election Day. Election Day of this year. Not going to happen. Trump was promising what he likely cannot deliver since Congress won't be back in session until after the election. Trump may have assumed that because he'd asked the Republicans in Congress for that tax cut, it would just automatically happen. It won't. But it was cash money to dangle in front of undecided voters two weeks before voting day. It was at a rally in Missoula, Montana, that Trump praised Congressman Greg Gianforte, who was sentenced to anger management classes and community service after he physically assaulted a reporter last spring. There, Trump was telling an audience already inclined to hate reporters that violence against them was okay. Quoting our president, I already body slammed a reporter. I said it might help, and it did. He sealed his endorsement of Gianforte by saying, anybody that can do a body slam, that's my kind of guy. And Trump had no problem with that endorsement just days after a Washington Post writer had been murdered. Trump's angry mob didn't mind either. In fact, they cheered. And days later, a live bomb was carefully carried out of the CNN building. Photographed in Brooklyn, meanwhile, a bumper sticker that reads, fight for the truth, punch a journalist. In Arkansas, a political action committee ran an ad that used the Kavanaugh process to argue that Democrats would bring back the lynching of black men. Democrats. The ad was so offensive, even the candidate it was supposed to support objected to it. It was a radio ad from a group that calls itself Black Americans for the President's Agenda in a race involving two white candidates in a district that's only 23% black. In the Kavanaugh theme, the subject is rape when a woman says, we can't afford to let white Democrats take us back to the bad old days of race verdicts and lynchings when a white girl screams rape. The candidate this ad was supposed to help has condemned it. But the bell had already been rung. If the Republican midterm campaign strategy seems familiar, it should. Voter suppression has been used by all parties in this country for decades, so that's not new. But certain individuals have raised it to an art form. Take New York Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin, whose campaign sent out a flyer this year to targeted Democratic voters, reminding them to have their mail-in ballots postmarked by November 6th, which is Election Day. Zeldin was giving those targeted voters the wrong deadline. It's actually the fifth for mail-in ballots to be postmarked. He would have made those people late. Zeldin's campaign says it was a mistake. And that does seem familiar to voters in his district who watched Zeldin do exactly the same thing in the previous election bid four years ago, the one that got him elected. Mailers being sent out by Republicans in Washington state for that state's legislative races are pushing progressive write-in candidates to chip away at support for the Democrats in those races. Also used throughout American political history and revived this time by the president, another way to suppress votes, especially among those unsure about the system, is to tell them they might go to jail. 
quoting a Trump tweet from over the weekend, all levels of government and law enforcement are watching carefully for voter fraud, including during early voting. Cheat at your own peril. Violators will be subjected to maximum penalties, both civil and criminal, end quote. And that brings us to the fear factor. Trump and his Republicans are using the same technique that worked so well for the controversial George W. Bush administration, fear. But in the Trump era, one thing to fear isn't enough. The messages of the past two weeks, fear going to jail. Be afraid of voter fraud that doesn't exist. Fear the angry liberal mob and fear their socialism and their wrecking of the economy. Fear that your son's life will be ruined because a woman accused him of sexual assault. Fear the migrants slogging toward our southern border. Fear transgendered people. Fear them and stop them. Fear them and hate them all. And while you're at it, body slam a reporter or declare an arms deal more important than that of a murdered journalist. A report on the aftermath of Jamal Khashoggi's killing is still ahead. But fear of Muslims is being used in local Republican campaigns around the country, partly because there are Muslim candidates running across the nation. One survey found that more than one-third of Republican candidates are claiming that Muslims are inherently violent and or pose an eminent threat to the U.S. It was the use of fear that helped Republicans win again and again in the W. Bush years. Under Democrats, they argued the terrorists win and America loses as they cashed in on those who died on 9-11. In the Trump era, the Republican use of fear to manipulate elections is back, and not just one bullet this time, but more like a scattershot of automatic gunfire. More about Trump's fear campaign, what the killing of a journalist has touched off, along with Bob Seska, and Obamacare finally catches on after this. Thank you again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. No matter what you buy there, your use of that link helps this newscast stay free. And if you shop the new Amazon business, which is also free, you can manage your office supplies with the greatest of ease. I got a small commission from Amazon for that and every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Now, if you'd rather not use my Amazon link, please then support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thanks again. President Trump blames the news media for the political environment that inspired all those bombs, saying the media and his political opponents need to be more civil. Salon.com's Bob Seska thinks the wave of bombs was inspired by something else. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. The president sets a tone for the nation. Whether he likes it or not, every president's words have to be carefully selected and choreographed, not just for political impact, but primarily for avoiding the dispatching of the wrong message. In the past, this rule has kept presidents out of trouble for the most part, given the immense degree of responsibility of the office. Donald Trump, however, doesn't really care about any of that. Long ago, Trump decided to instead blurt his version of his base's story, reflecting back upon his red hat crowds, their anger, resentments, and especially their fears without any filter or qualifiers. Before he ever descended the escalator at Trump Tower, Trump decided to rebrand his own status as a Manhattan billionaire and as a tough-talking TV celebrity. From the start, Trump cloaked himself in the grievances of white male baby boomers, while also providing a kooky, unhinged grandpa figure for a lost generation of millennial men raised by internet discussion forums and YouTube comments. None of this is original, of course. Trump's entire political persona is borrowed from Fox News. He deliberately hijacked the Fox News mentality and weaponized it. 
figuring that the cable newsers' viewers were a ripe faction to exploit. Trump wasn't wrong to latch his orange wagon to Roger Ailes's star. Fox News almost literally brainwashed an entire generation of older Americans ripe for the plucking. As much as Trump has piggybacked his economic successes to the trends of the previous administration, he's also stealing outright the Fox News platform and calling it his own. Among the many Ailes platform planks, Trump has elevated the racial animosity of the network, along with its penchant for conspiracy theories and wild political tall tales, disconnected from actual facts. If you happen to be a villain, it's a solid plan on paper. In execution, it's considerably more harrowing. Trump simply doesn't care if his words are taken literally. In the case of today's attempted assassinations, he'll never accept responsibility for instigating such attacks by relentlessly demonizing the press as the enemies of the people or Hillary Clinton as a criminal who should be summarily locked up. None of that matters to him because he can easily deny it and his cult disciples will believe him. The political bounce he gets by communicating strictly with his base and inflaming their misled biases is more important to him than whatever unintended consequences arise, such as terrorist attacks against an entire roster of his repeatedly announced political enemies. We already watched him on Wednesday launching into part one of his process on this matter. Trump will continue to confound logic by gaslighting and owning the normals. On one hand, Trump will condemn the violence and vow to investigate it. He has no intention, however, of actually investigating anything, of course, because such a probe will expose his own part in this plot. Nevertheless, he'll continue to play the Eddie Haskell in all of this by appearing somber, so somber. Then, with this as prologue, Trump will backslide into screeching about enemies of the people while soaking in every syllable of the CNN sucks chants at his rallies. Even if he plays it safe in his near-term rallies, he'll go there as soon as he feels the time is right, even though the time will never be right. Chances are Trump will eventually steal some of the nonsense he observed on Wednesday. This is a Democrat hoax, he'll say. Or he'll merely disassociate his usual horseshit from the consequences of it, perhaps blaming the Democrats for, he says, encouraging violence and the threat of the angry mob which seems to have clearly triggered the bomber's response. Besides, he's fully invested in his jobs, not mobs hashtag. So don't expect him to back down from his brand or from scapegoating his usual Democratic targets. Trump desperately needs the Republicans to emerge victorious in the midterms, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to avoid the Democrats suddenly acquiring control over the House of Representatives and with it attaining subpoena power. He's willing to use human shields in this endeavor, so we shouldn't expect any reduction in the same language he's used since the very beginning, language that's only grown more inflammatory since he's been gifted the presidency by Vladimir Putin. There will be no contrition. Even if someone had been killed on Wednesday, there's no way Trump, Fox News, or their red hat loyalists will ever accept that their behavior led to death. So we shouldn't expect a casualty-free series of bombings to shake them out of their brainwashed torpor.
But the rest of us, the normals, will know who and what began this slow descent into violence and political torment. It's the gang that's never condemned the bombings of hundreds of abortion clinics. It's the gang that cheered for Trump as he praised as good people the group of Nazis that plowed a car into a crowd of Charlottesville protesters. It's the gang that laughed and jeered while Trump favorably imitated the body slamming of a journalist. It's the gang that made it okay for Trump to again and again, threaten violence against Democrats, telling his followers to knock the crap out of them and that it's too bad nobody wants to hurt each other anymore. And since Trump has no plans to stop, it's time to make sure we hold him responsible with our votes and with our voices on November 6th. There's just 12 days to go. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on Tuesday. One aspect of Trump's fear campaign is especially frightening. Namely, his plan to take away the rights of the transgendered by declaring there is no such thing as transgender. It's only a proposal at this point, but it's the most radical move yet in this administration's goal of excluding trans people from the nation's civil rights laws. The fight actually began during the Obama administration, when it opened up education and health care to the transgendered by defining gender as the one the person chooses, not as the one on their birth certificate. That started the battle over public restrooms and other facilities that are separated by gender. The conservatives, and especially the Christian right, were furious and afraid. And Trump is cashing in on that and a lot of other fears just days before a crucial national referendum. He's proposing that gender be defined at the federal level as a biological, unchangeable condition that's determined by the child's genitalia at and even before birth. Trump's Health and Human Services Department wants this new definition written into the Title IX law that bans discrimination based on gender. That would change the rules also in the departments of justice, education, and labor. And that would make it okay for federal programs and others likely to discriminate against the transgender. This new rule would require genetic testing in case the person had also undergone transition surgery and there was perhaps some dispute over their gender. Although Trump failed in his efforts to ban transgenders from the military, he has forced schools, homeless shelters, and prisons to stop recognizing the transgender. He's also tried to remove questions about gender identity from the census and other government surveys so trans individuals won't be represented in government financially or by any other means. Now he's trying to define trans people out of existence. It's telling nearly one and a half million Americans you don't exist if you identify with a sex other than the one on your birth certificate. It's more than just campaign talk to fire up Trump's base with fear, fear of what they do not know or understand. Aside from having that effect, Trump's policies instill a very, very real fear in transgendered people and women and young black men and immigrants and, of course, journalists. LGBT activists have been meeting with the Trump administration to try to get it to at least soften the language, maybe take out the genetic testing, for example, and they're protesting outside the White House and in New York's Washington Square, and they're hoping the courts will weigh in in their favor. And now to Trump's fear campaign as it pertains to the thousands of migrants fleeing poverty and violence in a caravan of 4,500 people that began with just 200 people in Honduras last Saturday. People fleeing from violence in Guatemala and El Salvador, 
joined in the foot brigade, and then more Hondurans and Guatemalans and Salvadorans, and since then, some Mexicans too, growing at one point to over 7,000 migrants. It's dwindled since. Like all the other caravans that preceded it, this one follows the same trail, and like the others before it, this one has dwindled along the way from the heat, exhaustion, and hunger, now down to just over 4,000. Still believing that immigration is what got him elected, the president also believes it'll motivate his supporters to vote Republican in the midterms. So desperate is he to keep the promise, to keep that support. Trump's now threatening to cut off aid to Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. He's framing the march of migrant families as a national emergency for the U.S., a siege on our southern border for which he says he may send soldiers, the U.S. Army this time, and not the National Guard. Again, Trump is using fear to motivate his base of voters, and to some degree, it's working. Some governors would likely refuse to allow their guard troops to be used for this purpose, as they have done in the past, to resist Trump's policies. And there's a potential for violence at the U.S. border, since the migrants have already clashed with Mexican police under orders to stop the caravan. Trump tweeted that if Mexico failed to stop the crowd of migrants, quote, I will call up the U.S. military and, all caps, close our southern border. In his tweeted threat to send in the troops, Trump misspelled emergency, not an abbreviation of misspelling from the commander-in-chief who's preparing to send in our troops. But he remembered to use all caps and an exclamation mark. Capitalizing on that Muslim fear, Trump also claimed that migrants were not just criminals, but Middle Easterners in that caravan of Central American migrants. Using fear of immigrants and fear of Muslims, this president is trying to turn a humanitarian crisis into an attack on the United States and to use the fear of the different and the fear of an attack as a political prop for the Republican midterm effort. All Democrats fault for weak laws, tweeted Trump. This was the week we heard the president shout, I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. Those are Trump's words to a sea of red hats at another one of his campaign rallies, and he added, we're not supposed to use that word. By adding the not supposed to part, the president made it clear exactly the kind of nationalism to which he referred. Trump is indeed an economic nationalist. Both Republicans and Democrats have spoken of civic nationalism, and both are universally acknowledged. And then there is that other kind of nationalism, racial nationalism, as in white nationalism. With a wink and a nod, the president was making it clear the one to which he referred was the one that's taboo. He was using the naughty one. We're not supposed to say that. He said it for the votes. I'm a nationalist, okay? We'll find out if it helped in 12 days. And a side note here about the collateral damage of Trump's immigration policies. The U.S. has now deported a Canadian who had fought alongside American troops in Afghanistan and later married a former officer of the United States Air Force. 47-year-old Dimitri Furman had held top-level U.S. security clearance during his service in the Middle East and helped the U.S. effort to keep millions of dollars of heroin out of North America. He's now been deported. Among the good news to be found in this election season, increased cooperation between the federal government and state and election officials 
when it comes to attempted outside tampering with votes or registrations. In 2016, red state officials were not interested in getting any help from the Obama government with the election. Likewise, the federal government in those early days was keeping what it knew under wraps for security reasons. An investigation was underway. One local county official in California was asked by the feds if she'd noticed anything unusual in 2016. No, she said. Why do you ask? The feds didn't tell her, didn't tell her or other election officials around the country why they were suddenly calling to see how things are going. The attempted hacks of voter registration rolls were coming from Russia, and the feds knew it but didn't want word to get out since that might squirrel the investigation aimed at making sure it stops and never happens again. Elections in this country are locally managed, even on national questions, and local officials are adamant about keeping out the feds. Plus, there was the red state Obama thing since 2016 didn't go well in terms of state and federal cooperation. This year, with Obama gone and the Russian threat public knowledge, state officials, regardless of stripe, are cooperating because they finally have some idea of what to expect. To that end, the Justice Department, not the Mueller probe, but DOJ, has charged a Russian with conspiring to interfere in this year's election. She is the first person to be arrested for 2018 election interference for a sophisticated campaign of pushing arguments of misinformation on immigration, the Confederate flag, gun control, and kneeling in the NFL. All of this from a foreign national, a Russian, to divide Americans. The troll farm where the arrested woman works, the Kremlin's so-called Internet Research Agency, has also produced social media posts for liberals, including one that read, If Trump fires Robert Mueller, we have to take to the streets in protest. Our democracy is at stake. Russia is not entirely pro-Trump. It is entirely pro-Putin. The announcement of the arrest came just after a warning from the Director of National Intelligence about ongoing campaigns by Russia, China, and Iran to interfere with this election and again in 2020. In his visit to Moscow this week, Trump's national security advisor says he told Kremlin officials that their 2016 election meddling didn't have any real effect. John Bolton was essentially telling senior Russian officials there were no hard feelings since their mischief caused no harm. Bygones. Bolton went so far as to agree to another meeting between Trump and Putin when they're both in Paris for a World War I ceremony next month. This all's forgiven on the interference thing and let's get together again meeting won't make the Russians think twice about continuing their interference in this year's election or in 2020 and it would seem to be a green light to other nations wishing to do the same. All of this occurred, by the way, in the same week that the Justice Department was charging a Russian with interference in this year's election. It also occurred just as the United States Cyber Command finally started targeting individual Russian operatives with cyber attacks, cutting off their Internet access and telling them they're being watched. And with U.S. help, European countries are now launching their own attacks against the Russian trolls. The result? Entire networks of Russian operatives are being shut down and being warned they are under surveillance. Experts say this kind of approach tends to change behavior. U.S. officials say there have been no attempts to hack the actual voting system in this country this year and that Russian troublemaking online is being now shut down en masse. 
Twitter has just finished its review of the past 10 years, and as it turns out, there were 10 million tweets from foreign influence operations. Twitter found 3,400 accounts from that same Russian troll farm, and that data has helped explain Russia's pro-Trump mischief in 2016. The Russian approach was clumsy at first before it found a target, Hillary Clinton. But the overall focus of Russia's online efforts was division. After Trump's comments about Haitians and Africans, it put up a post that read, y'all have to admit Trump is right, and another that read, call it what it is, racist, both sides. After taking its time, Twitter has finally revealed the data that can help researchers and investigators and to help social media and elected officials make it stop. WikiLeaks, meanwhile, has been of great interest to the Mueller investigation. WikiLeaks and its contact with Trump advisor Roger Stone. Mueller's investigators have questioned witnesses and collected evidence on Stone's communications with WikiLeaks, according to the Wall Street Journal. Stone, you may recall, accurately predicted that emails connected to Hillary Clinton would be released just weeks before it actually happened. And again, after messages with Guccifer 2.0, who is Russia's military intelligence officer. Stone and Guccifer were in touch with each other. Stone had bragged about his contacts with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. A grand jury had already listened to dozens of hours of testimony about WikiLeaks and Trump's longtime friend and advisor, Roger Stone. Former Trump White House lawyer Ty Cobb says he does not believe, as the president believes, that the Mueller investigation is a witch hunt. Cobb says, in fact, and I quote, Bob Mueller is an American hero, in my view. He and I met in the mid-80s, and I have respected him throughout. And if it seems the Russia probe is slowing down, it's not. Robert S. Mueller III has been busy these past 17 months, charging more than two dozen Russians, getting guilty pleas from seven Trump campaign officials, not the least of which is its campaign manager, Paul Manafort. Even though the special counsel's been careful not to make any moves to influence these midterms, his team has stayed busy all the while, mainly, and thanks to, Paul Manafort. Manafort's met with investigators at least nine times in the past month to tell what he knows about the Trump campaign's connections to Russia. Each of those meetings has lasted about six hours. Between those meetings, investigators have met with witnesses who can either corroborate or contradict Manafort's stories, risking their own legal trouble if they lie. Manafort will be sentenced in February. The more helpful he is now, the less prison time he'll do. And among the things that Manafort is being asked about, whatever he may know about this Roger Stone. For as quiet as the Mueller team has been with all of its work, the fruits of that work are expected to become a lot more visible right after the election, as in more criminal indictments. Still cooperating with the Mueller team, Deputy Campaign Manager Rick Gates and former personal lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen. For years, he was the guy who protected Trump, the guy who would take a bullet for Trump. After a decade of loyalty, Michael Cohen now wants to play a key role in bringing down this president. The turnaround happened in just a few months after Cohen himself was betrayed by the president. Once the vice chair of the Republican National Committee, today Michael Cohen is a registered Democrat, urging people to vote and pledging to punish Trump legally and politically. Cohen's working with the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, as well as the state's attorney general, in addition to working with Robert Mueller. Cohen can provide information about Trump's personal finances, the workings of Trump's businesses, and his not-so-charitable Trump Foundation. 
Cohen is nearly as valuable as Manafort. Cohen's contribution boosted by his documents and audio recordings, including some of conversations with Trump. But Cohen's also pushing back at Trump politically. He told a CNN camera, grab your family, grab your friends, grab your neighbors and get to the polls because if not, you're going to have another two or another six years of this craziness. Added Cohen, so make sure you vote, all right? The stakes couldn't be higher. This week, Trump announced he's pulling the U.S. out of a nuclear arms deal with Russia that was the crowning achievement of revered Republican Ronald Reagan. Reagan's treaty, known as the INF, ended the Cold War, and it has kept nuclear missiles out of Europe for 30 years. It cut the world's nuclear arsenal by two-thirds. Experts say pulling out will create, quote, the most severe crisis in nuclear arms control since the 1980s. And with a nuclear arms deal signed by President Obama due to run out two years from now, it means nations around the world would be left with no limits on nuclear arsenals for the first time in 46 years. Trump says Russia has violated the Reagan agreement, so he's pulling out. His third national security advisor, John Bolton, has never been a fan of weapons treaties. He's a hawk in the truest sense. And although Trump says the U.S. will develop new nuclear weapons, experts say it's doubtful the U.S. can or will or needs to. Russia, they say, will, meanwhile, go gangbusters with new nukes. U.S. deals were made to be broken under Donald Trump. They're making note of that in places including South Korea. Trump has so far pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accord, the TPP trade deal, and now a nuclear arms treaty with Russia that stood for 40 years. The problem with unbridled nuclear development is that Russian technology in that area still trails the U.S. Scrapping the deal gives Russia a chance to catch up and then some. Mikhail Gorbachev, the former Soviet leader who signed the nuclear treaty with Reagan, says Trump's decision to pull out is reckless and not the work of a great mind. Gorbachev calls it very strange and asks, do they really not understand in Washington what this can lead to? Apparently some do. Even Senate Republicans are objecting to Trump's decision, and it's the Senate that signs off on treaties. And trashing the nuclear weapons deal with Russia may send another message, besides the one about the U.S. not honoring its treaties. Russia's Vladimir Putin thinks so. Just days before his meeting with John Bolton, Putin told a political forum that America's global dominance is coming to an end and that the U.S. is accelerating that demise by a series of mistakes that Putin says are, quote, typical of an empire. It's a demise for which Putin has wished out loud for years, now predicting its eminence. Putin's dreamed of a new world order in which Russia, China, Brazil, and India have a presence equal to that of the U.S. But never until now had Putin declared that the end of U.S. global dominance is upon us now. Days later, Putin would mock the eagle on the great seal of the United States. In the room was Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton, who shared a good laugh with Putin about that American eagle. And then Bolton said, forget the election meddling thing and Looking forward to seeing you again next month in Paris. Let the nuclear weapons development begin. What could possibly go wrong? The New York Times this morning reports that U.S. intelligence is so concerned about Trump's use of his unsecured personal phones, they've taken that concern to the news media. Trump has for two years ignored warnings from security officials about his use of these iPhones on which he discusses his challenges with his personal friends. U.S. intelligence says it has confirmed that the Chinese are listening to Trump's calls and using what they learn to try to influence him and American policies. 
maybe now that it's in the New York Times, Trump will finally stop using his personal iPhones. Or maybe he'll just keep using them. So long as the current president doesn't have to give up billions of dollars in weapons sales to Saudi Arabia, he appears to have shifted his position on the killing of Washington Post writer Jamal Khashoggi. But Trump did not condemn the killing itself. He just criticized the way the killers carried out their work. It was carried out very poorly, he tweeted. One of the worst cover-ups in the history of cover-ups. Somebody really messed up. We may want to save that quote for some future developments. The U.S. is punishing Saudi Arabia for its poor handling of the Khashoggi killing by revoking the visas of nearly two dozen Saudis. All are suspected of being connected to the Khashoggi killing, and the targeted individuals include members of Saudi intelligence, the foreign ministry, and the royal court. In other words, all of them tied to the Saudi crown prince. What Trump says he will not do is cancel that lucrative weapons sale to the Saudis. Khashoggi's murder occurred inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. And despite the sanctity of foreign embassies, Turkey has been investigating the killing, which Turkey's president called savage. Turkey reportedly has evidence proving the journalist was tortured, murdered, and dismembered inside the Saudi consulate, and that it was all caught on video recordings. Turkey has released uh, the video of a body double, a security cam video. The body double apparently wearing the same clothes that Khashoggi wore that day, but with different shoes to try to make it appear that Khashoggi got out of that embassy alive. He didn't. Since several of the killers were closely linked to the Saudi prince, Turkey wants the prince to lose his crown. Turkey likes his dad, the king, better. So did Jamal Khashoggi, which is why he and Turkish President Erdogan were such good personal friends. At the start, the Saudi government swore it knew nothing about the disappearance of Khashoggi. The Saudis presented a video tour of the consulate showing that, nope, no Khashoggi here. Open a closet door. Nope, he's not in here. Surveillance video of Khashoggi going into the consulate and not coming out, however, was an early clue. Stared down by the world, the Saudis said that perhaps the perpetrators were rogue killers, an idea first proposed by a certain U.S. president. Ultimately, the Saudis arrested 18 of their own, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman saying his country is investigating this, quote, heinous crime and that it will do all it can to bring the perpetrators to justice. This morning, the Saudis finally admitted that Khashoggi's murder was premeditated. The initial explanation was Khashoggi started a fight and died accidentally in the fisticuffs that ensued. U.S. intelligence believes Prince Mohammed bin Salman is culpable in this killing. And that puts the president and the prince in a tough spot. The prince doesn't want to lose his crown or his close relationship with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And like Trump, the Saudis don't want to lose that arms deal either. But the Saudi kingdom is teetering on self-destruction, and that's very bad news for the world economy, since Saudi Arabia's oil and oil money are a big part of our global economy. This is how you know you are where you think you are. A man arrested for grabbing the right breast of a female fellow passenger on a Southwest flight from Houston to Albuquerque told authorities, quote, the president of the United States said it's okay to grab women by their private parts. The man, identified partly by his dirty fingernails, is pleading not guilty. After being a problem for Democrats for eight years, Obamacare is now a problem for Republicans. 
With their fear talk of death panels and other nonsense, Republicans slammed the health care law from day one. Democrats then spent eight years playing defense, even though millions of Americans who had no health care plan suddenly did, and people with pre-existing conditions could also get covered for the first time. Kids could stay on their parents' policies till they were 26. It's taken eight years for Americans to overcome the fear instilled in them by Republicans to see that Obamacare was a good thing and even better before it got hacked by Republicans determined to make it implode. But now, eight years later, Obamacare is more popular than ever and gaining in popularity. Even a Fox News poll found that the Affordable Care Act is the most popular it's ever been right now, and that was just three weeks before the midterms. The Fox poll shows Obamacare to be more popular than the Republican tax cuts, more popular than Trump by 10%, and more popular than the Republican Party by 12%. Fox found that today only 17% of us want the Affordable Care Act repealed. Obamacare has finally won over the public with President Obama now nearly two years in the rear view. And in this year's congressional races, Republicans who voted to kill Obamacare are running on the platform of covering pre-existing conditions. On Tuesday of this week, the Trump administration announced a new rule for Obamacare, though, that allows states to let insurance companies once again refuse to cover people with pre-existing conditions, no matter what those local Republican candidates are saying. 46% of voters in the Fox poll, by the way, also favor single-payer health care. 46% in a Fox poll. 63% said health care for all should be a responsibility of the federal government. And while we're on the topic of health and other things on which Americans agree, guns. A new Gallup poll shows that more than 6 in 10 of us favor stricter gun control laws, tighter rules for gun buyers. 61% is a very healthy majority. Although that's down from the 67% we hit after the gun massacre at a Florida high school, both numbers represent the highest support for gun control in history. It's still a partisan issue. While nearly 9 out of 10 Democrats favor tougher gun laws, only 3 out of 10 Republicans do. And the idea is still more unpopular among gun owners than it is among non-gun owners. In Florida, one of the more than dozen states with a stand-your-ground law, the stand-your-ground defense is weakening. Under that law, Floridians, in this case, can shoot to kill anyone they believe poses an imminent threat to their life, even if they're wrong. But when a city commissioner, who also owns a military surplus store in Lakeland, Florida, shot and killed a would-be shoplifter, prosecutors this time did not call it self-defense. The shooter says the alleged shoplifter was wielding an axe. Surveillance video shows the man was carrying a small hatchet out the door and had made no threatening movements. There was no wielding. It wasn't even an axe, really. Prosecutors say the shooter, this city commissioner in central Florida, will not, as others have attempted, hide behind the stand-your-ground law. In Clearwater, a man who shot another man over a parking space and was using the stand-your-ground defense has now been charged by prosecutors with manslaughter. Stand Your Ground is having trouble keeping its ground in Florida. The bugs are dying. Megan Kelly makes a mess while Jamie Lee Curtis makes history. An ice cream parade and a suspect who shared too much in the third and final segment, Up Next. I was certainly surprised to learn that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35. A bald spot pops up, a creeping hairline. 
Well, what's that going to look like a year from now or two years? You want to keep the hair you have for as long as possible. And thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. Pro tip, uh, don't buy the snake oil at convenience stores. Buy the real deal from medicine and science. 4hims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. 4hims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, sexual wellness, and more. With advice and prescription-grade medications, not herbal supplements, at a fraction of the usual cost. No waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and no pharmacy lines. It's all much, much faster, a real time saver. Just answer a few quick questions. The doctor reviews your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website is amazing. Order now. My listeners get a one-month trial of Hems for just 5 bucks while supplies last. That includes a consultation. You'll save hundreds of dollars on pharmacy visits. See their website for details. Order right now at 4 slash BBNC. I'll spell it. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash BBNC. 4 com slash BBNC. Earth News. The storms are getting stronger. A typhoon, a Pacific hurricane, hit the U.S. island territories of Saipan and Tinian yesterday with winds of 180 miles an hour and gusts up to 200 miles an hour. Authorities say it was really more like a Category 6. A FEMA official called the storm historically significant and unprecedented. Typhoon U2 was catastrophic for the island's 50,000 residents. The storm was headed last toward the Philippines and Japan. There are some Republicans now who believe that climate change is real and really a priority. They are among the Republicans of North Carolina, still reeling from Hurricane Florence a month ago. Margie White's a Trump supporter whose giant laurel oak tree destroyed her roof in the storm. Quoting Margie, I always thought climate change was a bunch of nonsense, but now I really do think it's happening. Margie says her friends and neighbors agree, even as the president they support, repeated the denial of long-term effects of climate change. To Republican voters and some Republican politicians in North Carolina, climate change now seems logical. Like the president, a majority of Americans incorrectly believe that scientists are split on whether humans are the main cause of climate change. They are not, unless you consider 97% to 3% a split and this is not just theorizing. The scientists say they are more certain that greenhouse gases are to blame for global warming than they are about smoking causing cancer. Surveys at Yale and George Mason universities found that only 15% of Americans realize that more than 90% of scientists are in agreement that man is the main cause. The Guardian reports that the Trump administration is trying to restrict the public's knowledge about decisions on endangered species. Scientists and wildlife advocates were already up in arms about the removal of protection for wolves, grizzly bears, and other animals while boosting oil drilling and mining in habitats that are crucial to the survival of those species. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service under Trump has advised its staff to be less forthcoming, less transparent, in fact, about future rule changes. This guidance in a memo also advises FWS employees to withhold specific documents, including drafts and PowerPoint presentations, emails, and more. The memo warns employees of the danger of, quote, confusing the public about the Trump government deregulation. Shutting down the information also helps shut down the discussion and the objections. And meanwhile, the bugs are dying. 
bees and butterflies, along with grasshoppers and spiders. New research shows that insects around the world are in crisis, their populations plummeting downward. In Puerto Rico, where massive numbers of insects have vanished from its national forest, the animals that eat the insects are disappearing too. Birds, lizards, frogs, and snakes. By 2014, Europe's beetle population had decreased 45% in 35 years. German nature preserves have seen a 76% decrease in the number of flying bugs. A drop has also been noticed in the U.S., although it has not been studied as much here. Scientists say this dying of bugs is because of changes in our climate. Because unlike other creatures, insects have no way to control their internal heat, no way to cool themselves. And while a world with fewer insects might sound inviting, it also sounds like the beginning of something catastrophic. One of the worst offshore oil spills in history has become that slowly over nearly 14 years. Three to 700 barrels of oil every day have seeped from an oil drilling rig that sank in Hurricane Ivan off the Louisiana coast in 2004. Many of the wells have still not been capped, and federal government officials say they're unfixable, that the oil will likely to continue to leak through the end of the century. After 14 years of leaking oil, the Taylor Energy Platform spill is about to overtake BP's Deepwater Horizon as the worst spill in the history of the U.S. waters in the Gulf of Mexico. The Trump administration is proposing a massive expansion of oil and gas leases with the goal of opening up the entire continental shelf for drilling for a fossil fuel that is blamed for the storms that keep getting stronger. New York State, by the way, has just filed a lawsuit against ExxonMobil, accusing it of defrauding stockholders by downplaying the threat that climate change might pose to their profits. Efforts to hold the line on the world-changing pollution of man continue, however. In the Pacific Ocean off San Francisco, a 2,000-foot-long net is being dragged across the surface to gather all the floating trash into a pile so it can be loaded onto cargo ships. Much of this floating trash is plastic, dangerous to ocean life, and as we now know, people as well. The plastic will be recycled. It's an effort to clean up what's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, as it's come to be known, a field of trash that is, wait for it, twice the size of Texas. The net will return every three months to pick up the new trash that it inevitably collects there. The project has received $30 million in donations, more than $2 million of that through crowdfunding, just people. And this is not the only ocean cleanup project underway. And, sorry, Charlie, Starkist has pleaded guilty to price-fixing packaged seafood. Earlier, federal targets were Bumblebee and Chicken of the Sea. Bumblebee got fined $25 million with the threat of more. Starkist has to pay $100 million. Millions of pounds of ready-to-eat salads and pre-made foods like burritos, wraps, and pizzas are being recalled from Harris Teeter, Kroger, Whole Foods, 7-Eleven, Trader Joe's, and Walmart. This is a big expansion of an earlier recall that included just a few hundred pounds of grab-and-go foods. The CDC is investigating 155 new cases of that rare polio-like illness that struck children in 22 states. Acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM, is a rare but serious condition that attacks the nervous system. No deaths have been reported, but at least one little girl is now paraplegic. The CDC will try to determine why the big spike in cases this year. 
Just this week, Gallup released a new survey result that shows more Americans than ever now support the outright legalization of marijuana. Support for that has grown from just 12% of us in 1969 to 66% today. A new high. You want to have your wits about you if you're carving pumpkins for Halloween. Last year at this time, more than 3,000 Americans injured themselves carving out jack-o'-lanterns. 3,200 to be more exact, not quite one-fourth of the nearly 17,000 Halloween-related injuries every year. Kleenex says it will no longer call its extra-large facial tissues man-size. It will now call them Kleenex Extra-Large. The product line was launched to capture the guy market in 1956. Kleenex maker Kimberly Clark says it's seen complaints about the name man-size over the years in increasing numbers. After the 2016 election, three of the four major broadcast networks decided they needed to air more entertainment programming for the people who had voted for the new president. CBS didn't play. Instead, doubling down was Stephen Colbert and the return of Murphy Brown. ABC, though, hired Trump-supporting Roseanne, only to learn that it had picked up a nightmare. Fox picked up the canceled sitcom of conservative comedian Tim Allen. It's gone, of course, if the ratings aren't there. And now NBC News may be rethinking its decision to hire Megyn Kelly away from the Fox News Channel to host yet another hour of the Today Show. Much of the NBC staff has been bitter since her arrival after her history of ultra-right-wing comments on Fox News, including poo-pooing the idea of a black Santa Claus. Today, those staffers are even angrier with the NBC News executives who hired her. Al Roker had better ratings in that time slot, and he did it for a lot less money. Megyn Kelly getting $69 million for her three-year contract. And the ratings have dropped by nearly a half million viewers since the premiere of Megyn Kelly today. Her Sunday night show, Up Against 60 Minutes, didn't last long. It was a ratings disaster. And now this. Kelly asked on her show this week why white people shouldn't be able to wear blackface makeup for Halloween. Suddenly, NBC News management was no longer defending Megyn Kelly. It allowed its air personalities, one after the other, including Al Roker, to comment on Kelly's remarks on the air. And Kelly's blunder was also featured in a story Tuesday night on NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Kelly has publicly apologized but she is reportedly about to be fired. Actress Jamie Lee Curtis made history this week. On just the opening day of her latest Halloween movie, she raked in well over $33 million. That's the biggest opening day take in history. It crushed at the box office, almost as big as the October record-setting Venom. Halloween was the top movie with $78 million. Jamie Lee Curtis tweeted, hashtag women get things done. A Star is Born was second at nearly $20 million. Venom is now in third place. For all the movies, previews, theaters, tickets, and showtimes, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. You can now take your own popcorn to the movies. In Peru, a consumer group there has won its case against a big theater chain that wouldn't allow patrons to BYOP. The theater chain was outraged. Like theaters in this country, concessions are really what pay the bills. But the court said it wants the theaters to keep selling popcorn, soda, hot dogs, and ice cream so long as moviegoers are also allowed to bring their own popcorn, soda, hot dogs, and ice cream. 
The court ruled that movie patrons are still not allowed to bring foods that don't appear on the theater's concessions menu. Passing from us this past week, the woman who invented the Thanksgiving classic green bean casserole has died at the age of 92. Dottie Riley was working in the Campbell's Soup Test Kitchen in 1955 when she mixed four cups of green beans, a can of cream of mushroom condensed soup, some milk and spices, and topped it off with a can of French's fried onions. It took about 10 minutes to whip up and about 30 minutes to bake. Five years later, Campbell's put Dottie's recipe on the mushroom soup labels, and the rest is Thanksgiving history. And now, so is green bean casserole inventor Dottie Riley. What's better than ice cream? A parade of ice cream trucks. The town of Crewe, England has made the Guinness Book of World Records with the biggest, the world's biggest ice cream truck parade. To benefit a local children's hospital, 84 ice cream trucks paraded through town playing the songs that ice cream trucks play. Hopefully they were well-spaced. Driver says he made a wrong turn. Our highway spill of the week occurred in Seattle when 22,000 metal balls spilled out of a truck and tumbled through the street downhill, damaging at least a half dozen cars. They are two-pound steel balls used to turn stone into gravel and sand. A police spokesman say they appeared to be, quote, really big ball bearings. The checks in the mail and the mails in the woods. In New York's suburban Westchester County, they found a pile of undelivered mail in the woods. Postal investigators have not yet said how long that mail has been laying there, but they say the mail will go through. Things are far less interesting in Nebraska, and that's the point. That's the gist of the state's new ad slogan. The Nebraska Tourism Commission, yes, there actually is one, is now using the slogan, Lucky for you, there's nothing to do here. The video shows happy people floating down a stream in livestock tanks. The hotel reservations should start pouring in any minute now. Crime Stoppers notes, in Portland itself, the Albert family is offering a reward for the return of the sculpture they kept on their front porch. It's a Caucasian-colored sculpture of a human nose. Stands about two feet tall, weighs about 50 pounds. The Alberts say they found it in a trash bin after a photo shoot. The Alberts say they want it back because, quote, we thought it was really funny and makes us part of Keep Portland Weird which might explain the offered reward of $6.27. This whole court's out of order. In Chehalis, Washington, about halfway between Seattle and Portland, Oregon, two handcuffed inmates were appearing in court when suddenly they made a run for it. Well, the judge was having none of this. The judge tore off his judicial robe and gave chase. His honor captured one of the men, grabbing him as he ran out the courthouse door. The sheriff made note, these things don't happen very often. And finally, in Kansas City, 25-year-old Sean Sykes Jr. has pleaded guilty to federal drug and gun charges, but a confession wasn't the only thing they got out of him. Quoting directly from the Associated Press, a detective reported that when asked for his address, Sykes, quote, leaned to one side of his chair and released a loud fart before answering, Court documents say Sykes continued to be flatulent and the detective was forced to quickly end the interview. Young Mr. Sykes will be sentenced. 
perhaps after things quiet down. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.